0: It was so frustrating. Just when you are ready to give, you feel the compelling urge to hoard, along with hard to describe sensations in your arms and hands that keep you from being able to let go. It's called Close Fist Syndrome, or CFS. Close Fist Syndrome is the overwhelming urge to hold on to cash at all costs. This can lead to some very difficult situations, making normal daily events a major obstacle. CFS can turn a bad situation into a nightmare.
1: License and registration, please.
0: My doctor said CFS is a recognized medical condition. And then he said something else. Generous. He said generous would help relieve those CFS symptoms that keep me from giving. He told me what to watch for, that generous may cause you to give more money away than is financially responsible or to prematurely cash in your 401k. Tell your doctor if you experience these problems. Do not mix alcohol with Generous or you will lose the shirt off your back. Side effects can include bankruptcy, foreclosure, and living in a van down by the river. Most participants were not bothered enough to stop taking Generous. Ask your doctor if Generous can help you overcome CFS and get you giving again.
1: You guys like that better than the first service, so that's good. I thought maybe I was going to be looking for another church in Nebraska or something. After. Nothing wrong with Nebraska, but that's my fallback, so, you know. All right, let's pray. God, thank You for the worship that Troy has led us in, for the worship that the venue and Cactus has had. Lord, I thank You for the gifted men and women You've given us at this church that just love to help prepare our hearts to focus on your truth. And so, Lord, that's what we do now as we're in our worship service. We want to turn our sights, Lord, to what you've said about life, about our lives and living here on planet Earth and what it takes to be a follower of you. So I pray, God, that as we open your book right now, that you'd bless us by the power and wisdom of your Holy Spirit and that you might be honored and glorified in all that's about to happen. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So Pat made fun of my title earlier, Bake Sales. Uh, You're going to see where we're going here this morning in just a second, because here's what I've noticed about the world that you and I live in. When the Boy Scouts want to do an outing, they do a service project. When the Girl Scouts need money, they sell cookies. When the Kiwanis or the Lions Club need to fund a project in the community, at least back in the Midwest where I come from, they hand out peanuts uh, on on a road and, and get a dollar for each bag of peanuts. When the school cheerleaders want to raise money, they have a bake sale. When the private school needs money, they do a silent auction or a public auction, and they auction off goods. You and I are part of a world today in which when a non-profit entity needs to resource or fund its vision, we utilize the free market. Uh, We kind of play on people's desire for things and to get something in return, and by so doing, we raise a little money for needs. And though there is nothing at all wrong with that, I really mean it, I mean I engage in everything that I just said. I got five boxes of Girl Scout cookies that I don't need right now in my home, and I've gone to lots of auctions, and I participated in all that. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just that when it comes to the church, you and I need to be careful what we imitate from society around us. So here's the deal. None of those things that I mentioned are wrong or sinful. No, they're good ways to get people involved and raise a little money in the process. But you and I as the church must always be careful in everything that we do, that we don't just do what the world around us does or we run the risk of eclipsing a plan that God might already have for us when it comes to whatever activity we're involved in. And so when it comes to how God wants to resource his church, get this, he's already laid out the plan in his word for thousands of years now, and it has nothing to do with bake sales, rummage sales, car washes, or craft shows. Nothing. It's a brilliant plan that God has that will actually draw you closer to Him in the process as well as draws closer to each other, and it's a plan that God says if you and I will follow, will be guaranteed to provide provision and resources for his church or whatever Christian entity we're working with. And I want to share with you this plan today. The original title of this message, see they truncated it for me. I didn't submit the title to this message. I didn't say bake sales. The long title of this message is, why we don't have bake sales. Because years ago somebody came up to me when I was doing a capital campaign in the church and said, why don't we have a bake sale? Why don't we have a rummage sale? Why don't we do this? And, and it kind of caught me off guard, and I thought, well, that's kind of a good question. Why don't we? Ah. Let's go to the Bible and find out. So that's what we're going to do here in the rest of our time this morning. So I only got two points I'm going to share with you. Two points that will answer the question why we don't have bake sales and what God's plan is for resourcing or providing for His church. And then we got a few sub points here today as well. But here's the first point, and this is the starting point, and that is that we need to recognize that it's all God's everything. Everything. It's all God's everything. And you see, with this point, folks, uh, it blows away a classic myth that is in culture today, that's perpetuated by society at large, and I'm going to show you in a second here, even the church. And it's the myth that says it's all yours. I call it the pride of personal ownership myth. And we all know how this myth goes. This myth says, I've worked hard, I've earned my car, I've earned my house, I've earned my clothes, I've earned my 401K, I've earned my vacation, obviously no one else did it for me, and so it's all mine. It's how most people think today. It's certainly how our society tends to think. It's the pride of personal ownership. And what drives me bonkers is that many Christian churches simply buy into that myth and add a subtle twist to it. Tell me if this isn't true. They say it's 90% yours and 10% God's. I'm telling you, I I heard that early on when I first became a Christian 32 years ago. And, And this gal was explaining tithing to me. And as I was being discipled, she said, here's the cool thing, Jamie. God wants 10% of your gross, not your net. He wants 10% of your gross. And if you give Him 10%, then the rest is yours. And that's what I was taught. And so I believed that for a few years until I started reading the Bible and started studying the Bible. And I realized that the Bible doesn't say that at all. We'll talk about tithing later. The Bible does talk about tithing. But before it even talks about that, the Bible says that it's all God's, and that that's the mindset that he wants God's people to have. So if you brought a Bible with you, I want you to turn in your Bibles to a verse that you probably didn't read in your quiet time lately, unless it was in the devotional guide. It's 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 12. Chronicles is about a third of the way through the Bible. So cactus and, and venue, where are you? I don't know where the cameras are. Cactus and venue, you're going to want to turn to the, the Chronicles passage. Uh, First Chronicles chapter 29, verse 12. King David is praying at a critical time in Israel's history, and he says this: He says, Both riches and honor come from you, meaning God and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand is to make great and to give strength to all." I like how it says that, both riches and honor come from you. Doesn't that blow away the myth that we just talked about? You and I live in a world in which it says riches and honor come from us or society, or what we have done to make wealth happen. God comes along and He says, no, ultimately, the riches and the honor that you have, any wealth you have, any things you have, come from Me. And the reason that this is so, did you catch it in this passage, is because God is sovereign. He rules over all. He controls all. Ultimately all things go back to Him. He gives you breath. He gives you life. He even gives you divine placement in your lot in life, so it's no accident that you live in the valley of the sun. It's no accident that you have the job you have, that you're married to who you are. You can blame God for that one. It's all God's thing. God says that He is sovereign over your life, and He made it all, and then He adds the fact that it's all His You know what's amazing about the Bible is that it doesn't just stop with saying it's all God's. It actually gives us examples in many parts of the Bible of certain things that you and I think that we have earned and that we own, and God actually says, I own that. Let me show you. I want you to think of your land, your plot of land that you live on now and the house that sits on it. Did you know the Bible says that it's God's? Look, Look at Leviticus 25 verse 23. God speaking, he says, the land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. You're a stranger and a sojourner with me. And though that's written to Israel back then in context, that's a timeless principle of how God thinks about you. Uh, It's God's. Think about your money. Guess what? God says, it's mine. Look at Haggai 2, verse 8. He says, the silver is mine, the gold is mine declares the Lord of hosts. So even your money, God says it's mine. And then if you're still wrestling with this, look at Psalm 50 verse 10. It kind of sums the whole thing up when it says, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills, which simply means your dog, the steak that you ate last night, the fried chicken, the milk from the cow, all of it god says not yours it's mine and i'm the one as we're gonna see in a second that has blessed you with it but before you even get on to what you are to do with this you need to recognize it's all god's everything uh, maybe this illustration will help i've uh, I think i've shown you guys a picture of my very very first car that i had when i was 16. here's a picture of it it was a 1965 dodge cornet 440. Very interesting story behind this car. My grandmother, whom I just adored, we just loved her to death, passed away rather early. She was in her early 70s. And it was 1978, I was just 14 going on 15, and when she passed away, she left all of her possessions to her only child, my dad. And part of her possessions was this 1965 Dodge Coronet sedan uh, car. And my sister was just going off to college. My younger brother couldn't drive yet, and I was just getting my learner's permit. And this was back in the days when you didn't have a third car. You guys remember those days where, you know, you just didn't have that? So it was kind of weird in my small hometown for the Rasmussen to have three cars, but my dad said, okay, Jamie, you can have it. It's your car. Just try not to kill yourself. And so I got this car when I was 16 years old, and in the small little town that I grew up in, it quickly became known as Jamie's car everybody knew it. All the kids in high school, all my friends, all my family, all, all the parents, even the police, small town, knew that this was my car. That they would see it drive by and they go, there goes Jamie, keep an eye on that car. And though it wasn't a muscle car per se, it did have a 361 two-barrel under the hood, and so kind of a dangerous car to give a 16-year-old. But my dad did. And I learned responsibility. I took care of the car. I filled it up with gas. I I washed it as often as a 16-year-old would. And it was my car. But you know what was interesting? Is that if you had pulled out the title back in the late 70s to that car, it wouldn't have had my name on it, would it? There's no way my dad was going to put my name on the title to a car. Saved on insurance, nonetheless. The name on the title said Frank Rasmussen. So, it felt like my car. I treated it like it was my car. Everybody around me said it was my car. Even my dad said, you're going to take your car tonight. But in all reality, it wasn't my car. The ownership certificate said very different. And that's the point. Maybe now you can see that God says the exact same thing about everything that you own. It feels like yours. You treat it like it's yours. As we're going to see in a second, that's a good thing. Everybody around you says it's yours. But God says if anybody ever checked and looked at the title, it wouldn't have your name on it. It would say God. And so the first truth that you and I need to understand, if we're ever going to understand God's plan for resourcing His kingdom, is this. It's all God's. Everything. Now, as many of you know, that's just a starting point. We're just leaving the gate right now. So here's the second point, and this one has a few subpoints to it, so bear with me, but this is very life-giving. And that is, the second point is, is that God calls each of us then to be good managers of what he has entrusted to us. Now, the Bible calls it stewardship. We use the term manager today because it tends to be a more accessible term, but the Bible uses the word stewardship. And the Bible says that once you understand that God has blessed you and that everything He's blessed you with is His, then you're ready for the second step, and that is to start seeing your life as a steward and understanding this principle of stewardship. And it's a very, very rich principle. Uh, The word stewardship in the Bible, the original Greek Bible that the New Testament was written in, comes from the Greek word oikonomos. Look up here on the screen, oikonomos. And oikonomos is a very interesting term. It's actually a mixture of two Greek words, oikos, which means house or home, and then nomos, which means law or the parceling out of law. So you put these two words together, and oikonomos literally means a house manager, somebody who parcels out the rules for the house. And so the word steward means an overseer, a supervisor, a manager. In essence, get this. I love this. It means to have total control over something that is not ultimately yours. Whoa. So that first principle is all God's, so all that you have is not yours. God comes along and says, now you are stored, which means you have total control over something that is not yours. And many of us have lots of examples of this in our modern day lives. So for instance, if you went to college and took a degree in hotel management, you have been taught how to have daily and total control over a hotel's operation, even though you don't own that hotel. Or say you're a jockey, you like to ride horses, or you love to train horses, you train, you feed, you care for, you you work with that horse, you might even receive accolades when that horse wins, but as a jockey or the trainer, you most likely don't own that horse. So you have control over a horse you don't own. Or how about if you're the CEO of a company? I know plenty of CEOs that work for a board. They work for shareholders. They have to report to shareholders. So they have daily operational control over something that is not yours. We all understand this principle of stewardship. So a steward is somebody who needs to use wisdom and maturity in managing something that is not ultimately theirs. And so with this understanding, isn't it cool that Jesus actually came along and said, here's my two overriding principles for your life as one whom God sees as a steward with what He's blessed you with. Look at Luke 12, verse 42. It says, and the Lord said, who then is the faithful, that's the first principle, and wise, that's the second principle, manager, whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? So this parable is talking about all of life and managing all of life, including money. And look again at those two critical words, faithful and wise. That word faithful is the Greek word pistis, where we get the word faith from. It simply means trustworthy. God is trusting you with something. And then that word wise is the Greek word phronomos, which literally means, I get this, to be thoughtful, to be cautious in character. That's what you know about wise people, right? They're not fools. They're not whimsical. They're thoughtful with what they've been blessed with. And so put these two together. These are the values that God has for you when it comes to all that you've been blessed with. That you would see yourself as a steward of what he's given to you. And that you'd be wise and thoughtful and faithful with these things. And so, I love how the great devotional writer Andrew Murray said it years ago. This is so appropriate today. Look up here on the screen. He says, the world asks, what does a man own? Christ asks, how does he use it? And therein lies the difference. See, your neighbor, your neighbor asks, what do you got? What do you own? What kind of car do you drive? How have you done the interior of your house? Hey, what's that in your backyard? Uh, what hobbies do you have? What vacations you're gonna take? How's your 401k doing? See, that's what your neighbor's interested in. Christ isn't interested in all that. He's interested in what you're doing with what he's blessed you with. Now, the question that invariably comes in at this point is what then is a wise use of resources, right? I mean, if it's true that God is concerned that we're faithful and wise, then what is a wise use of what God has blessed us with? And I want to share with you three things that the Bible gives us, three values or principles that God has given us all when it comes to a wise use of what He's blessed us with. And the cool thing about these biblical principles is that this is true whether you're making $25,000 a year or $250,000 a year. These are principles that God has given that are timeless. And I'm telling you, ever since I became a Christian, and certainly ever since I got married 25 years ago, Kim, my wife, and I have lived by these principles, and they've served us well. So here's the first one, and these are not in any order, as you're going to see, actually. I'll put them in order in a second here. But here's the first one, and that is that God wants you to, to, to see your resources as a provision to provide for yourself, your family, and your loved ones. In other words, he wants you to to, to see your blessings and be responsible to take care of yourself and to take care of those around you. And this is eminently biblical. Look at 1 Timothy 5 verse 8. It says, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So God wants us to provide For those that we love, which means that it's a good thing to save for college, help your kids provide and share. I remember when I first started to get involved in church work, the chairman of the board in Detroit at the church I was serving in was a guy who had been a Christian for about five years. He was starting to really grow and mature in his faith and was a great leader. And he had been taught how to give, which we'll talk about in a second, and and to give generously. And one day when we were talking over lunch, he said, you know, we, we do give to a lot of places, but, you know, a, a big portion of our giving right now is going to my mother-in-law. He said, because my mother-in-law is on fixed income, she, she's living in a, in a house that's not all that nice, and, and me and my wife are committed to helping her get on her feet, so a, a lot of our excess is going to, to help her. I thought, what a biblical thing. You provide for your own. And, and God says that that's one of the reasons that He has blessed us. Now, with that understanding, notice a second priority God has for us in managing the blessings He has given us. And this is going to surprise and even encourage some of you, and that is that He calls us to pleasure and enjoyment of our blessings. You're saying, where's that found? Couldn't be more clear. Look at Ecclesiastes 5 verse 19. It says, everyone also… To whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept His lot and rejoice in His toil, this is the gift of God. So let's understand this in context, both biblically and in life. What God is saying here is that in light of the other two principles, the one of provision and the one I'm gonna share with you in a second here, keeping in mind those things, and also keeping in mind that you're not to go into any type of significant debt, which is for another sermon, God says it is good to enjoy the blessings that he has given, that it's good to enjoy the fruit of your labor and to take the blessings that God has given you and to find joy in them the puritans called this the bounty of god the fact that it's okay to enjoy the blessings that god has given you even the material ones and again it's, it's hard to preach on this guys because i never know in in those that i'm talking to whether it's you guys here or whether it's cactus campus or the venue where you guys are at because some of you are out of control in your spending and you don't need to hear that you need to enjoy it more you need to hear some of the other things and that is that you need to pull back. But then there's others of you that were raised in Grand Rapids or something like that. I know I'm gonna get an email for that one, but you were raised in Dutch country and and, and you haven't found a lot of joy, amen? You haven't found a lot of joy in, in the blessings that God has given you. So try to hear this biblical teaching in light of where you are, and if it frees you up to know that God says it's okay to take joy in your blessings, it is okay. It's a biblical principle. So so it's okay to provide for your family. It's okay to take pleasure and enjoyment. And then notice with me, thirdly, but not lastly, as we're going to see in a minute, this is actually one of God's first priorities for us. Obviously, He blesses us forgiving, forgiving to other people and to His kingdom. I I like how a friend of mine said it years ago. Very simple. He said, God blesses you so that you can be a blessing to others. Amen? That's what it's about, that God blesses us so that we might be a blessing. So last June, I did a message here at our church on Acts chapter 20, verse 35. Some of you would remember it, except those of you who are enjoying your second home. Maybe weren't here. But uh, seriously, those are those of you who get that second principle. We love you. Perfect. So Acts 20, verse 35, I'll remind you, says this. It says, In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. These are some of the very few words of Jesus outside of the Gospels. It is more blessed to give and receive. Very common phrase that Jesus said. It appears on Hallmark cards and all over the place. But, but a very, very potent thought, a very potent passage. Because giving is an overriding theme in the Bible. God wants us to give because as you're starting to see this is the primary plan that He has for resourcing His work on planet Earth. That when tangible resources are needed, whether to build a church or start a ministry or do something significant overseas and those with those that, that have needs, God says it's His people giving that is my plan for resourcing this. Now, let me share with you on top of this then three principles that the Bible gives us on how to give in such a way that might honor God. And these are right from the New Testament. So first, notice that we are to give generously and sacrificially. Boy, Antonio folks, this is so clear in the Scriptures. Look at what it says in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 3, in talking to the Corinthian church about the Macedonian church. It says, For they, the Macedonian church, gave according to their means, as I can testify, even beyond their means, of their own accord. Whoa. So they gave beyond their means, and Paul would actually want to say this was a pretty poor church. Think inner city church, not a lot of resources. And they gave beyond their means, and Paul was praising them for what? For their sacrifice. And then notice the next chapter later, in 2 Corinthians 9, verses 11-13, Paul then speaks directly to the Corinthian church on top of this, and he says, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God and he says at the end of verse 13, and the generosity of your contribution for them and all others. So twice there he uses that word generous. So add all this up. It's really clear. The Bible says that when you and I give, the two values that God holds dear is that we are giving generously from a sacrificial heart freely and joyously. And you know what issue comes up? Every time I'm talking about this at this point, the issue always comes up at this point is, well, what about tithing? I mean, isn't tithing giving generously and sacrificially? And the answer is, well, maybe. I, I guess it just depends. Let, let me explain. I, I've wrestled with the tithing issue a lot. In the, uh, in the Old Testament, for those who don't know, the, 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 the law in the Old Testament was, is that you were to give a tenth of all that God had blessed you with back to the priest's in the temple for, functioning in the, for the function of the temple and also for doling out to those in need. So the law in the Old Testament was, is that you would give at least a tithe of your income and first fruits back to God. And then interestingly, the Old Testament did talk about offerings and things like that that you would give above your tithe. So many Christians today argue that you should give a tithe and then maybe more when needed, you know, give a little bit more. That's where that things come. it's 90% mine and 10% God's. The only problem with that is that in the New Testament it never uses the word tithe, at least in a positive sense. I think it's Colossians that uses tithe in a negative sense, but you can't find the word tithe in the New Testament anywhere in positive terms. And so some point out that tithing is not a New Testament ethic. But it's interesting, in the Old Testament, tithing was talked about before the law when Abraham gave a tithe to King Melchizedek, so some argue that it existed before the law and so it was operable for all of humanity. But I don't even think that's the issue. Here, here's where I think we can make some sense of this. When Jesus showed up on the scene, you know what Jesus did with the law? He said, the law said this, but I'm here to call you to a higher standard, Now that grace has appeared, so this is what I want you to do. So for instance, in Matthew chapter 5, you can read it later, it's quintessential. Jesus says, you've heard it said in the law, but I say to you, you've heard it said in the law, don't murder. I say, don't even be angry. You've heard it said in the law, don't commit adultery. I say, don't even lust in your heart. You've heard it said in the law, don't break an oath. I say, don't even swear by heaven and earth. You've heard it said in the law, an eye for an eye, for tooth for a tooth. I say to you, turn the other cheek. Get the picture? Jesus took the law, and he said, the law is good, but now that you're empowered by the Spirit, now that you're followers of me, man, we're here to blow the law away. We're here to show what grace is about as ones who now even live above the law, beyond the law, as radical followers of Jesus Christ. So here's my point. I can hardly believe then that when it comes to tithing, Jesus would come along and say, you know, it used to be 10%, now it's 2%. I just, I mean, think about it with me, guys. I know this is uncomfortable because the average Christian, by the way, and evangelical Christians lead the way in giving. We really do. We lead the way in charitable giving at about two to two and a half percent of our income. That's what evangelicals do, born-again Christians. And so I sit there and go, you know, I'm not judging anybody, but I get to sit there and go, I'm not sure we've understood what being freed from a tithe means. Because we've lowered the standard, not up the standard. And everything Jesus did upped the standard. So I'll just share with you how Kim and I have tried to live and by and large very successfully lived over the last 25 years of marriage. When we first got married, we were eating TV dinners one night above our… in our little apartment above a four-car garage in Barrington. And the newscaster shared that, that, that night, I forget what the number was, but what poverty level was in Chicago. And we looked at each other and almost choked on our food as we realized that our combined income was lower than poverty level in Chicago. I was in seminary, she was a substitute school teacher, and you can do the math, it just wasn't doing very well. And yet our theme song back then, I told you guys this, was that great old country song, Even Though I Ain't Got Money, I'm So In Love With You Honey, because we were fueled only by love back then. We didn't have anything else. And yet we tithed. Isn't that interesting? We tied. My dad thought we were nuts. My, my dad is… You know, looked. we were talking about money one day and they said, yeah, we gave 10 percent to our church. And he goes, you did what? He goes, you know, you're asking me for money. He goes, you know, why are you, why are you giving 10 percent to the church? And I said, well, I'm giving 10 percent of what you give me to the church too. So I said, you know… I said because I, I just… I think that's the minimum of what God would want us to do. We really can't do more than that, but I, I think that, you know, I mean, it was good theology. And over time, we've been very faithful to that, and then as we're going to hear next week when it comes to things like compelled by grace, God calls us to give even over and above that, and Kim and I have always lived that. And I'm not bragging, I'm really not. I mean, it's just, we're not perfect, but but, but we've lived that, and God has been, as you're going to hear in a second here, very, very, very gracious to us when we've tried to follow His plan here. So again, I don't want to get stuck in tithing, I really don't. I, I, my personal opinion is, is that Jesus calls us to, 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 like, rise above that in a good way, and that that's why generosity and sacrifice are the name of the game. It's just that generosity is probably not counted in single digits by God, but more in the double digits. So that understanding, notice me a second New Testament principle when it comes to giving back to God out of the blessings He has showered us with and that is that we are to give intentionally and regularly. Now, this is really for another sermon, but, but just notice what the Scriptures say because this will be important for us as we pray about Compelled by Grace. 2 Corinthians 9.7 says that each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, because God loves a cheerful or joyful giver. 1 Corinthians 16.2 says on the first day of the week, each one of you is to put something aside and store it up as he prospers, so that he there will be so that there will have to be no collection when I come. So what I take from these two verses is that God says, plan what you're going to do. Pray. Talk about it with your spouse. Come together. Have unity. Lay this before God. Determine what generosity and sacrifice mean for you, and then plan and then act. I, I, in the Old Testament, they call it first fruits giving. You gave a first of your fruits to the temple. That way you made sure you were intentional about your giving and that life didn't rob you of the joy of giving. I think that's a biblical ethic. And then notice with me third, and this one, you got to bear with me on this. If if ever you walked out on one of my sermons, you don't want to walk out now because I'm telling you, this one we have to work through and understand because I'm going to sound like a TV preacher here for about two seconds. And the third principle is, though, when we give to God… He blesses us back. Now now bear with me. Malachi 3 verse 10 says this. It says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you, now here it is, a blessing until there is no more need. So at the very least, here's what we know. When we give to God, He promises a blessing. Now, somebody's saying, hey, this is Old Testament again. What are you trying to pull on me? Good point. Look at what the New Testament says. Look at 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6, in talking directly about money. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 says, the point is whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Wow. So God says if we are chintzy in our giving, we're going to get a chintzy blessing. If we are bountiful in our giving, we're going to get a bountiful blessing. Now, if you're tracking with me all here, the key to all of this, isn't this true, depends on your definition of blessing, right? Because see, what the TV preachers do is that they assume that the blessing here is only and always a financial blessing. So they take these verses and say that you need to give to my ministry and give sacrificially and they pray on people in this way and give sacrificially and if you do God is gonna bless you with money and wealth and riches and we call this the wealth health prosperity gospel and I don't think it's accurate at all and I think the greatest misunderstanding here is not that God won't bless you when you give that's the promise but it's how you define a blessing Because what the Scriptures make clear here is that it's a blessing that you're going to get. And a blessing can come in many different forms. In fact, for years I've taught this. Here are the three Ps of blessing. You might like this. This is in your notes, but write this in the margins. Chisel this in stone. The three Ps of blessing are peace, the presence of God, and or at times increased provision. And I believe what God says in Malachi 3 and then in 1 Second Corinthians 9 is that when you and I give faithfully, generously, and sacrificially, one of those three Ps, or at times even more than one, will be the blessing that you get. Sometimes you're going to get a peace in your heart knowing you've done the right thing. That's a blessing. Sometimes you're going to get an amazing manifestation of God and His presence in your life. That's a blessing. And then there are times when you give to God, and let's just be honest about this, and because you've been faithful, and even because you've stretched yourself, He's going to say, I'm going to take care of you. Man, man you sacrificed for, for my kingdom, and as a result of that, I'm, I'm going to take care of you. I remember one of the first times I ever learned this. This is a true story. And again, I, I run risk telling you this story, but it's real. It's real to me. The year was 1993. Again, Kim and I were just coming out of poverty level at that time, and, and, and we had two little babies in Detroit a small little 1,000-square-foot home that we loved, and we had our third baby on the way. And, and we were driving back then a 1983 Malibu station wagon. You guys remember station wagons? In 1984, Chevy invented… Or no, I'm sorry, Chrysler invented something called a minivan that revolutionized the way that young families lived, but we couldn't afford a minivan. We were driving an 83 Chevy Malibu station wagon that was on its last legs. And with a third kid coming, I knew I needed to do something, so I took out an unsecured loan. I didn't like to borrow money for cars, but we didn't have a choice. I took out a very small unsecured loan of $4,500, and I said to Kim, it'll take us three years to pay this loan back, but with this, we can buy no more than $4,500 a used minivan. And she was so excited. And so we went out, and and I found… do you guys remember what a Ford Aerostar was? I'm so glad they don't make those anymore, but a Ford (laughs) Aerostar… It was a big box of a minivan, and I really wasn't into an Aerostar, but I found a, a, a five or six-year-old Aerostar that had only 60,000 miles on it, original owner, and the guy was asking $5,500 for it. And so I went and looked at it, and I fell in love with this. I said, it's perfect for Kim to drive around with the babies. And, and I said to the guy, I only have $4,500. I'm not snowing yet. That's all I have. I don't have a penny more, and uh, I can offer you 4500 dollars and I said, did I mention I'm a pastor, which always works really well. I did, too. I did. I'm not shy of that. And he did take some compassion on me. He said, well, Jamie, I'd really love you to have this. You know, we don't have kids and, the, you know, and all this, and so we, we really don't need the van, and we, we've upgraded to something else. And he worked for Ford, and he said, you know, the trade-in value is five grand." And he said, I, I can trade it in for $5,000. i would be willing to let you have it for trade-in value. And I said, I don't have $5,000. And he said, well, then if you can see your way to it, fine. If not, then this isn't your car. So, I didn't buy it. I drove home that that afternoon. It was on a Saturday. And and here's where the story gets thick, because as I was driving home, I realized that earlier that week, because I'm intentional and regular in my giving, I had written a check for my year-end giving. And the check that I had written was a pretty large check because We had been planning this, and it was a check to my church for $500, which was a lot of money back then. Now, can you guys do the math with me? I have a $4,500 loan. I have a $500 check already written to the church, and I got a minivan in which the guys wanted to come down to five grand on, and I'm doing the math in my head. And I was thinking to myself, God wants to provide for my family. You know, God wants me to have pleasure, Ecclesiastes 5, and, and this van would give me pleasure. And, I mean, I tried every mental gymnastics thing I could go through, and I was in agony for about five, six hours all Saturday night. The next morning I went to church. I was the associate pastor. I didn't preach. And I sat there. You know the Bible says God loves a cheerful giver? I gave that day with no joy at all in my heart. I mean, it, it's like that closed-fist guy he came by, and I'm like, oh, no! And I, and I dropped that check in the offering plate. And, and you know what? I felt good. I did. I feel good. You know, when you do the right thing, even though it hurts, you feel good. So, I kind of went home kind of depressed that afternoon. And, uh, and, and, and I was thinking, well, you know, I'll have to keep looking for something. And I kid you not, at 4 o'clock that Sunday afternoon, there was a knock at my door. It was Christmas time. It was uh, December. And Lynn was at the door. And Lynn and Fred lived next town over, a really nice town called Gross Point. Fred was a Uh, an orphan when he was growing up, but he was taken in by a minister's family, and he had a real soft spot for ministers. And we've been at this church now for, you know, two, three years, and Lynn just kind of looked sheepish. She just said, I I wanted to give this to you in church, but I didn't see you. She said, Fred I just want to give you a Christmas card. I thought, who hand delivers a Christmas card? And so I said, well, thank you. And she literally ran and got back in her card. And as I sat there in our little kitchen, I opened up this Christmas card. You always tell when a card's a little thicker. So I opened up the Christmas card, and there was a check in the card. And and the check was for $500. And I just sat there and you know, my my campus life leader years ago said, the definition of a coincidence is that God performs a miracle and prefers to remain anonymous. And I know many atheists and agnostics, and even some of you, you know, pickled-mouth Christians would be saying right now, you know, well, that's a coincidence, you're reading too much into it. But I don't think so. It was just too much of a coincidence. So I called the guy up, and I said, I got $5,000. And I went and bought Kim the AeroStar. Now here's the point. Don't miss this. This is really important. For every story I have like that, and I only have a few of them, I got 10 stories of peace and 10 stories of God's presence. Please don't. This is not a slot machine. This is not where you put in your quarter, pull the lever, and get a nice treat. That is not how God works. There have been plenty of times where I've sacrificed and giving, and I've kind of looked and said, okay, God, where's the blessing? You know, and he said, well, the blessing is myself. Aren't you happy? Uh, yes, I am, Lord, you know, and, 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 and I mean, that's the blessing I get, and it is real. I don't mean to make fun of that. And, and so I don't want you guys to hear that. I tell you that story just to say that whether it's in the form of peace, whether it's in the form of provision, whether it's in the form of, 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 of presence, God blesses And so here's what's happening at your church right now. At your church right now, we've been engaging in a journey called Compelled by Grace. And this journey, as all of you know, is a spiritual journey, but it's also a journey to resource the next season of ministry. And it will be a long season, extending all the way to our kids and our grandkids of ministry here. We're engaging in a significant campus redesign to create double the space that we need on all levels. We're going to do multi-site campuses so that our very successful cactus campus and our venues can continue to happen. We're going to be engaging in church planting with Phoenix Seminary so that we can partner with our beloved seminary and also propel the next generation into church planting. And we're going to get more involved in Western Europe and the Middle East. And you know, as I was making my… or seeing the PowerPoint yesterday that the creative team put together for me… I do the message, but they do the PowerPoint. I looked at this number that we're going to put up here on the screen. This is the need that we have, 23.5 million dollars. I almost wanted to delete that slide last night when I saw it, because I thought that's such a, an outrageous amount of resources, the biggest this church has ever done. But as I said to a group this week, I said, you know, it's a lot of money, but I believe our people are very generous, and I believe our people are very sacrificial. So we're getting down to the end of this. Here's what's going to happen the next two weeks. I want you all to be prepared. Next week, we've got one more message in the Compelled by Grace thing. It's going to be an awesome message. A lot of stories as we talk next week about what God is doing here. And then two weeks from today, on March 10th, we have our Commitment Sunday. And on that Sunday, we're going to ask all of you who haven't done so yet to come prepared. We'll talk about this more next Sunday. Come prepared to give a pledge over and above your regular giving to help meet this need. It will be a three-year pledge, so we're not asking for money up front necessarily. We're saying a three-year pledge of what you feel God has enabled you to do over and above your regular giving for the next three years starting at the end of March, which will have a First Fruit Sunday on Palm Sunday. And we're asking you to pray about what God would have you do to meet the need for the vision of His church. And so, on your way out today, here's what's going to (laughs) happen. You're going to love this. We're going to give you a cookie on your way out today. (laughs) One, my idea. We're going to give you a cookie as a reminder of why we don't have bake sales. And on that cookie, there's going to be three little principles. Look up here on the screen that we want you to think about. How how do you know how much to give to something like this? Well, we need you to be generous, we need you to sacrifice because the need is great. We really do. And, and all of you are in… Diff- we're all in different places, I mean, so chill out about that. We're all in different places. The, the maxim I use is equal sacrifice, just not equal gifts, right? So, so there's some of you who can't give a huge gift monetarily, but what you can give is a sacrifice, and I promise you, I promise you God will use that, and He will bless you. And, and then there's others of you who have been greatly blessed. This is Scottsdale, and as you pray, we're asking you to pray what you can do to help this vision become reality. So here's how you do it. You re-surrender your life to God. Why? Because if you don't, you won't remember it's all His. It's all His. So resurrender surrender your life. And then ask Him and listen. Kim and I have been doing that a lot. I'll share more next week. But ask God and listen as to what He wants you to do. And then it's simple. As He speaks to your heart and impresses on you what He wants you to do, then obey Him. Last major campaign we did as a church, believe it or not, some of you say, "Gosh, it's gone by so fast." It was 10 years ago. We had a commitment Sunday for what we called EOH, enlarge our hearts. At that time, we had about 3,000 people who, 3,000 families who gave regularly to Scottsdale Bible Church, and we had about 1,830 families participate in EOH. I've set a personal goal this time. We have now about 3,500 families that regularly give to Scottsdale Bible Church, and I'm praying for a participation rate of at least 2,500. I really am. Now why is that? i I tell you, when you only have 50% of the people participating in this, it's hard to say we're moving together in unity, right? But if we can get, at whatever level, a very high participation rate, not only will the need be met as we all participate together, but also I think that galvanizes us in unity. I actually love the people who have said to me recently, you know, I'm really not into bricks and mortar, really don't care about another campus, I kind of like church planting. I I do care a little bit about Middle East stuff, but you know, all the stuff that's going on here really isn't my gig. I like to do Bible studies and I love to evangelize out in the marketplace, whatever. But then they say this to me, but we understand that the need is great and we have to do this. And if this is what our elders have discerned and what we're all unified on, then I'm in. See, that's sacrifice. That's maturity. That that's somebody who says, this is my church and I own it and, and I'm all in. And, and I hope that's your mindset as well. Just so you know, I was driving down here this morning and I was thinking, okay, I'm going to do a sermon on, on giving and, and, and provision and all that. And I got to tell you, I can't wait to get to the book of Galatians because I didn't go to seminary to do sermons on like this. But then I thought to myself, but this is a real spiritual thing, isn't it? Money is a spiritual issue. It is. And we're not a church that asks for money very often. We don't. You guys know that. I feel worse for visitors. I met a visitor the other day who said, I came to your church. And I'm like, oh, cringe. Because I, I said, you know, it's just, this is a tough time to come. And he said, nah, chill out. I get it. I get it. He said, it, 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 it happens. And I, and I thought, bless him for that. Because I feel bad for visitors right now. But, but you all know we don't do this very often. And this is a once-in-a-lifetime gig. I said to the elders of the other day, if we get six years from now and you guys propose another capital campaign, strike a search team for another senior pastor because I ain't your guy. I, I, I think we have put together an amazing plan that God can use, but we all need to participate and at a sacrificial level. So pray about that. Pray about what God would have you do. Why don't you bow with me and let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your grace and for Your goodness. I thank You that Your teaching is clear from the Scriptures on even something as pragmatic and difficult as resources, possessions, and money. But Lord, we know You care about these things. And uh, as we saw from Andrew Murray's quote, You don't care as much about what we own as what we do with what we own. And that, Lord, we honor the principles in Your Word. So God, help us to that day. Help us to right ourselves when it comes to our understanding of the blessings that you've given us, God. And Lord, I know there's some here today that are really hurting financially, and they're like, oh my gosh, I'm just not even in the same ballpark. But God, even for us who are hurting, as we come before you, why don't you share with us what role you would have us play in Compelled by Grace? And, and, And Lord, you would speak to our hearts and our minds and realize, Lord, that this is all about grace. There's no shame in any of this. God, thanks that you love us. Thanks that you have blessed us. Thanks that you care for us. Thank you that you have your hand on this church. We look forward to what you're going to do as we band together in unity and are compelled by your grace. And we pray these things in Christ's name. And the whole church says together, amen. Amen. Hey, God bless you guys. We'll see you next Sunday.